Welcome to episode 12 of The Women's Wisdom, Our Journey in Emergency Medicine, a production of the Women in Emergency Medicine section of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 8,000 emergency physicians dedicated to board certification and democratic group practice. In this episode, Dr. Molly Estes interviews Dr. Lois Swisher on her journey through emergency medicine. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of the Women in Emergency Medicine Women's Wisdom Podcast. My name is Molly Estes. I'm clinical faculty at Loma Linda University in Southern California. I'm also part of the Women in Emergency Medicine Education Committee, and it is my pleasure to be able to introduce to you today Dr. Lois Swisher, who is our chair of the Women in Emergency Medicine Committee, as well as, Lois, you have so many other roles in AAEM and in CORD and so many of these other fantastic organizations. I I think I could spend the entire podcast just listing off all of your accomplishments. Um, Let me have you go ahead and introduce yourself, but also tell us what are a few of your favorite roles um, out of all of the ones that you have. Well, thank you so much for having me here. I am so excited to be part of this podcast. Um, And there are quite a few roles that I do. Um, Well, what my full-time job, my paying job is, is I'm a um, community emergency medicine doc. I had been... Um, associated with the Hahnemann Drexel Residency Program, and that unfortunately had a bankruptcy. And so there's been um, a lot of changes in trying to find my role in GME. I have a heart for medical education. Um, I still work with some medical students in, um, that come through our program from Drexel. And now I'm associated with the Jefferson residency program. They took 11 of our residents in the diaspora of Hahnemann Closure, and uh, that's been a new experience of having that relationship. Congratulations. That's wonderful. Thanks. And for my roles, I just tell people I do things. (laughs) And I do lots of things in various organizations, but my passion really is to learn about people and to connect them with their interests. So sometimes I get involved in things because I really want to find out something and how it works so I can connect to another thing. Uh, That's how I've gotten involved in a lot of things in AEM. (laughs) I love that. I I think it's a, a great parody of what we do um, in our jobs and our specialties every single day is being able to connect with people kind of where they're at and through that really intense situation connection be able to figure out the next steps that we need to take in that therapeutic alliance and to be able to segue that into the professional realm too of helping connect with people and get them where they want to go it's just it's an incredibly wonderful and unique skill I know that I've heard you speak um, very passionately about wellness and about physician mental health and many other topics that are so vital and important and appropriately increasing in popularity these days. Uh, is there a specific topic um, that you find yourself always eager to speak about uh, on the national stage? The one that I think I've spoken about the most um, relates to physician suicide prevention. And that's really near and dear to my heart. I think that might be one of the 
most important, the thing that I'm proudest about is bringing that to the national stage because what they don't tell you as you're going through in medical school and residency, you find out is this is a really hard job and there are rough roads that are gonna happen and being a physician is going to hurt. You don't know what it's going to be, but if you choose this and choose to be in the presence of human heartache and misery and do things where you don't have all the information and you have to make high stakes choices, not all of them are going to be right. And sometimes even when they're right, other people will have other opinions about that and make it difficult situations. We learn to choose our patients over ourselves. So we may miss things of our personal life. When you reflect on it, sometimes that hurts. So I think, I, I think that the thing that I like to talk about is that it is a rough road. And if you feel like it's a rough road, it's not just you. Other people are having that rough road. And if you share, like, this was what happened to me, other people will feel, I'm not alone, I'm not a failure, I'm not an imposter, I'm just an ER doc like everybody else. God, those are, I, I, I wish, I, I wish podcasts had a video component to them because if all of you could just see me right now, <laughs> I, I am nodding and smiling and I, I feel the need to do some, like, poetry reading snaps right now because... It's so true. And the more people, the more leaders like yourself that we have speaking these truths, the more it does make it acceptable for the rest of us to not only feel it, but for us to speak it ourselves. And we need to break down the walls of the Superman syndrome of uh, of the physician persona. I, I, oh my gosh, I just, I could not agree more. I could not support uh, you in your skill set in being able to talk on these topics uh, anymore. Uh, I'm speechless. I'm literally speechless. I, I have nothing else that I could possibly say. And before I, we get too far ahead of ourselves, um, I do want to take a step back and inquire, what got you into medicine in the first place? What specifically drew you to emergency medicine for all of our young listeners out there? So I don't think that I have such the greatest story. When I was growing up, my mother, my mother was an elementary school teacher. And in college, she moved and was unable to get a job. And she started telling me, never go into this profession. If you go and better yourself, she had reading specialization, that you will price yourself out of the market and you'll never have a, a job. So. I was a first year in college, a freshman, and I sort of took that to heart, and I didn't know what else to do. And my roommate, my best friend, was in the pre-med track, and everybody kept asking me, are you in pre-med? Are you in pre-med? And eventually, it just got easier to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Wait, so you got peer pressured into <laughs> medicine? <laughs> yeah. Pretty much, I got peer pressured into medicine. Oh my gosh, <laughs> incredible. And then once you start going to med school, you figure out like, it's a really expensive. Now you're gonna have to be a doctor <laughs> because you have to pay for that. And so I was like, okay, what am I going to do? And I found that I really felt connected with patients. 
And even as a third year medical student, I was worried that something was going to happen and I wasn't going to be there. And I don't know what I thought I was going to be able to do, but I felt that responsibility that I should be there. Um, so when I was a fourth year medical student on trauma, I stopped answering my beeper at 7.30 at night because my intern would call me call me and says, you have to leave. You're making me look bad. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, wait, wait. Just to recap, you got peer pressured into medicine and then you got guilt tripped by your intern <laughs> to stop working. Yes, I had a problem with cool. that. Cool, 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 cool. <laughs> so like, well, I have to choose a specialty. And I wanted a patient care specialty. I'm like... Pathology and radiology weren't, I, I needed more human contact, and that was my impression. No bad ideas about pathology or radiology, but that's what I thought. I really needed the, the patients. But then I needed to be boundaried because when I was in medical school, I loved being in the hospital, and I loved talking to my patients and learning their stories. And I was afraid I'd get to be 70 years old and I wouldn't have had children and I wouldn't have had a family and I would have missed that part of my life. And that emergency medicine had shifts, boundaried me some, and I would be able to do both. It would help me with that. And I did want to get married. I wasn't married when I started medical school and I thought, I want to be portable. I want to be respectful of my partner that if they want to have choices, if I was building up a private practice at that time 30 years ago, well, it's hard to move your patients with you and to restart that. Emergency medicine didn't have that problem. You could be portable. And then I like challenges. I love challenges. And I thought it was the hardest thing that I could actually do. Um, so there you go. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's your origin story. Yeah. I mean, this is this is the start of where you where you began your passions and your journey and now we find you today the recipient of the AAEM Keeney Award in 2019 this year being receiving the designation of the Masters of AAEM how how did you go get from point A to point B your career has exploded over the last six to eight years and at this point, I'm just blatantly p picking your brain to help me in my future career pathway. Um, but tell us, how did all that happen? My career wasn't what I thought it was going to be. When I went to residency, even though I was sort of on the quiet side, and I thought that it, it would take a little bit for, for me to get into emergency medicine, uh, that cowboy mentality, I don't look like a cowboy. In fact, I'll tell you, I now like the internet because I am taller on the internet. When people first meet me, they're like, I thought you were taller. I'm like, yes, apparently I'm 10 feet tall on the internet. You have a 10 foot tall personality <laughs> is what it is. Yeah, I don't look like, like myself apparently. <laughs> I thought that I was going to be dean of a medical school. I was uh, had a mentor that was taking me to the AAMC. I was working with standardized patients. I was really trying to get into that education component. So I did this, the early 90s, a made-up medical education fellowship. There were no such things at this time. <laughs> um, but I got to present nationally. I had my first peer-reviewed article, all the things that we do now for medical education. I thought I was on the fast track. I became a counselor for ASAP before AAM was 
an organization. And then life happened. I became pregnant, and it did not go well. I was not hypertensive before that, but by 15 weeks, my pressure was 150 over 100, and by 18 weeks, I was pulled off clinical shifts. Wow. At 26 weeks, one day, I had to go for emergency C-section. Oh, my goodness. And she was 504 grams and DNR in the delivery room. She happened to end up having APGARs of four and nine. People could hear her crying outside of uh, the delivery room. Three weekly doses of steroids is a great thing. I ended up being off clinical work for four and a half months. And that started to affect my trajectory. One of the things that happened when I was off, the student clerkship came up, and I was not offered that. I wasn't upset because I had a preemie baby, and I don't know if I would have been able to commit to that or not, but I wasn't asked, and I think other people were trying to not make me feel bad, not put extra pressure. I don't think anybody was mean to me. I think everybody was trying to do the right thing. I do wonder how my life would have been if I would have had the clerkship. The harder thing was when she was five years old, she developed a malignant brain tumor. Mm. And after the surgery, she was completely neurologically devastated. She was blind, mute, paralyzed, incontinent. The next two years, we spent four, more than 400 days inpatient or outpatient at the hospital, at Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania. That devastated my career. At the same time, Medical College of Pennsylvania went bankrupt. That's when I went to the community. I became a nocturnist. It was before the internet and computer and podcast and Twitter. So your connections were really through in-person conferences like, like this. You had to connect to people. And if you weren't able to go, then you couldn't really play the game. And I stayed in that mentality until about 2014. Well, actually 13. That's when my second research was. And when that second research happened, I found Twitter and podcasts. And I drank from the fire hose. I thought this was the best thing. I gave one of my residents my phone. He set up my Twitter and my first like 25 people to follow. <laughs> and I was like, this is amazing. You mean you can go to conferences? This is when I found EMET Home. You can go to conferences and you don't have to leave your home. That summer, I did 250 hours of conference, like the entire thing. I thought it was like the best thing ever. It's incredible that even nowadays, even as quote unquote modernized as we've become, as much as our mentality has changed, that we're still very much often locked into that traditional way of thinking that says I need to do a, B, C, and X, Y, Z order. Otherwise, I'm done. And it just goes to show that there is no definition to how your career, life, or anything else needs to look or should look for that matter. It is truly a unique experience to us all. Absolutely. And just because you may be out of sync doesn't mean opportunities aren't there. So... The first national organization that I uh, became involved in, I came back to AEM, Austin in um, 2015. And when I arrived, there's registration, there's this sign up for open mic. I'm like, well, 
this open mic thing. What's that? Well, you can give these 20-minute presentations, get some feedback on it. Okay, well, I've just started these lectures on joints, radiography, emergency radiography, and that's what I love. I worked at night, and then what I did was I spent all that morning rewriting it so I could be in that walk-on open mic spot that afternoon, and I did that. And I know it's YPS, and I know residents can do it and everything, but so can attendings. And this is a way to get back in, to look at the opportunities, to be on committees, um, to say, hey, yeah, I'd like to run for positions in council or become a chair and learn that experience, even maybe though it's a little later than the traditional route. And I know that we've had um, the conversation you and me before about how do you begin your career? How do you continue your career? How do you go about positioning yourself to be able to participate kind of in some of these things that we dream about participating in? And as you just said, putting yourself out there is kind of that first step, uh, whatever that might look like for the individual. As we unfortunately come to uh, a close almost on our time together for this conversation. I fully anticipate these conversations to continue. Do you have any other advice for young, middle, or even end-stage career physicians about how do they get to that next step? How do they dream their dreams? How do they accomplish them? Don't let anybody tell you you can't do it. What you need to do is show up to places, particularly places where you want to go in that direction. If it's something you want to do, meet those people and volunteer to do different things. And when you're asked to do something, say yes. Don't say like, oh, maybe there's somebody better, and are you sure? If the person says, will you do this, do it. And that opens the door to all kinds of possibilities. I love it. Show up volunteer, say yes, and don't be afraid to go for what you're after. Absolutely. Lois, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. My pleasure. This has been an amazing time, and I am just so proud of all the women in the section, and we're now at over 1,100, that have incredible dreams, and I think that they can do amazing things. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. For more information about AAEM, visit our website at www.aaem.org. Find all episodes of this podcast and our other podcast series on the AAEM website under Resources and then Publications. Join us again next episode for a new journey through emergency medicine.